Hi guys, welcome, 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 welcome. Hi guys, welcome to the program, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Still have two minutes to go. Just got in early so we could get people on. Good evening. Let's know where you are reaching us from. Let's know. Let's know. Oh, we're not supposed to touch our faces. Right. from Accra. That's good. Of Aquara State. All right, we'll be. I will be going up shortly. Okay, should be ready now to invite. Should be ready now to invite. So go shortly now. All right, trying to reach. Okay. 
not showing. Hello, hello. I got a from yesterday. We solve that now. Should come on now. Can you hear me now? Yes, I got you. Thank okay. you so much. <laughs> I could see you trying to get me. I, I was requesting, but I think you have too many people. So, oh, yeah, I think that's what happened. How are you? I hope, I hope everything is fine. I'm fine. All right. I've been great time. I've been bombarded with a lot of questions, very good questions. Already? So, yeah, it's just yep. six past the hour. Yep. So I'll, okay. I'll try and um, um, run through them now. So let me kick off. How is the program doing Citizen for Citizen? I said I was going to talk to you about that. We're doing well. I mean, I think people have been amazing. They've been, um, I think Nigerians are some of the kindest people in the world. We're quite communal in our natural self. And uh, I think there's no way we close our eyes when our neighbor needs help. I mean, forget when the political seasons turn things upside down. But in our natural community, people reach out to, to themselves. And I think that's what Citizen for Citizen is showing. So yeah, it's been a good right. experience. Okay, all right. The first question I'm gonna take says, what are the key success principles that has made Chia Center a sustainable brand for 30 years? Well, we're actually 31 years now because we started 3rd of January of 1989. So we celebrated the 30th a little later in its 30th year because of the First Bank's 125th anniversary. So we're 31 already. But I would say that that's largely due to consistency our resilience in responding to every challenging season and every issue that's, I mean, issues that businesses can face in any season. Commitment to the vision of building a successful business over the long term. Uh, building stable workforce that have stayed with the business for long term because they, be, they are the heart of the business. When you have people that have institutional knowledge and are committed to helping to build over time, that allows you time. Mm -hmm. Also having customers that you build business and relationships with over time, and that comes from your commitment to always try to deliver the best service and uh, product that is possible. Doesn't mean you won't have your moments where you'd mess up, but your, the sincerity of your purpose and your commitment over time allows you to build long-term business relationships. And if you do have set values for your business in terms of the things that are important to us, the things we will not do and the things we will do no matter what it costs us, over time, you would find those things speak for you in your most trying moments. So it's a, it's a number of factors. Over such a long period of time, you find that you play in different scenarios. But 
committing to making it work. And of course, in my case as a Christian, I think the grace of God and having the strength that um, your faith gives you to respond in the challenging moments, that is something that you cannot quantify and uh, you can't buy it with money. So that's a major part of what it is as well. All right. Um, there are a lot of questions about the impact of uh, the COVID-19 on the economy. So I'll just ask one here. It says, in the light of the recent global pandemic and the decline in oil prices, what are your views on the expected impact on our economy, given our huge reliance on oil? And what can the leadership of any organization do now to strengthen their revenue and investments? Okay. I think one of the things I would tell anybody in business Hello, can you hear yeah. me? Is make hear you. sure you invest, you invest time in listening to professional analysis of the environment in terms of the impact of um, COVID-19 and some of the related factors. This afternoon, I uh, logged into a webinar that was conducted by Augusto and Co. And they were talking about the impact of uh, COVID-19 on the Nigerian economy specifically, relating it to factors that are local to us. Now, that's the kind of thing I would expect any business person or any person in leadership in any organization who needs to take, make decisions over this period to invest time. Either you're paying for it or it's available to you for free. Sit in sessions organized by economists or professionals in um, the national economy in, in whatever form and get professional deep knowledge of what the issues are. I can give you some idea, but I am not the technical uh, professional that would give you the drilling down facts that you need. So what I'm saying is get an idea, but get more than that because it's really important. What is clear that if the price of oil is down, uh, the sale of oil is down because most of the world uh, production is on lockdown in some way or the other. And there's like a price war going on. So we're selling at uh, the lowest in a bit in a while and all of that. What does that tell you? That Nigeria from oil revenue of about 90 something so many years ago to about 50 something in the last few years is probably going to earn maybe about 20 something billion from oil this year. That um, there are other kinds of revenue that we've always had, but people haven't paid a lot of attention to because we haven't realized just how much we're exporting people to other countries. You know, people complain about people going to Canada and going to everywhere, but they're actually a major source of revenue for our country. So in real numbers, they're the second largest foreign exchange income earner for the country. And by Augusto and Co's projection from their session this afternoon, they expect that from oil, we will earn about 25 billion this year, their guesstimate, but they also then expect that from 
um, repatriated funds by Nigerians in diaspora, we will earn about $20 billion. Now, wow. that's wow. so close that you will be surprised that they actually play such a major role. And in his commentary, he said that their repatriated funds would actually not decrease by much. Why? Because most of those Nigerians who typically actually repatriate money home are actually high-level professionals. So the environment, even in the developed countries, does not impact them as much because they're not at the bottom of the pyramid in those markets. So mm -hmm. we need to then create some more formal structure for tapping the most value from those kind of revenues so that they come in more formally rather than coming in informally in, in other ways. So there are many, I mean, we will earn money from trade and stuff and all of that. Life will still go on, but there are many things we need to be conscious about. Obviously, if there's a reduced foreign exchange earning for the country, this will affect our taste for foreign imported goods because there would not be as much of foreign exchange available to go around for everything that we want to buy. What does that tell you? If you're a manufacturer, there will be opportunity for replacement of goods within the market, which means we need to ramp up the quality of what we produce in order to attract the customer that will be looking for alternatives in a market where they cannot readily get the foreign exchange to import, nor can they probably afford the increased price because once you have that scarcity, it's going to affect price. There's also a uh, likelihood of uh, uh, increase in uh, inflationary rate in some way. But there, there are quite a number of factors. So those in business need to think about how we will survive. How are you going to manage your costs? Because that would be extremely important. How do you preserve the capital of the business? so that you do not burn a lot of your capital in meeting your everyday expenses in the business. You need to be open with your workers and show them the reality of the environment and the situation and work together on how to survive the season together. Some companies are going to uh, reduce, have salary cuts some ways or the other in order to be able to survive the season because hopefully it makes more sense to workers to pay everybody a percentage of their salary than sack half of, this, half of the staff in order to pay the other half their full salary. So there, there are loads of uh, conversations that will have to go on. I think in many ways, even as you know, we like to beat our government up one way or the other, we at least can be grateful that a lot of the food we eat is largely locally produced now, including our rice. So that's a plus in terms of what uh, the government has done. And the focus on agriculture, I think in a moment like this where everywhere, everybody shut their door is when we can realize that if we didn't, if we hadn't sort of equipped ourselves to be able to take care of ourselves in many ways, then we will not only suffer in areas where we have lack, like our healthcare system and all of that, we will also suffer in general stuff like feeding our people. All right. Um, now, some young person, she asks, as a fantastic networker in her early days, that's referring to you in business, uh, was she intentional with her networking? 
and what was her process? And can she please mention or tell me three books apart from the Bible that changed her thought life? I like that. Why exclude the Bible? <laughs> She's taking the Bible as one. As one. Apart from the Bible. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I'm not, I don't focus much on what I call, I mean, network is such an abused word in many ways, the way I see it. I prefer building relationships rather than just, you know, network for network's sake. Because it's a natural consequence of your life in many ways. If you go to school and whilst you're at school, you relate with people around you <clears throat> with a sense of decency and respect and consideration for other people. You will make friends. Some will be deep, some will be casual, but generally you'll have a courteous relationship with many people around you. And based on how you have related to them within that period, that's what determines how you're able to relate to them when you meet them in the future. Because they can meet you in the future and not want to have anything to do with you or meet you in, meet you in the future without you even remembering their names, but having a good memory of their experience with you. And they open their doors to you because they are, oh, didn't you go to Ife? Because I cannot count how many times that has happened. Someone says, I know you. Did you go to Ife? And he goes, yeah. Say, hey, I was in Morimi with you. I was in science faculty with you and all of that. And in five minutes, it's like you were close friends all the years you were at school. But that's not true. But that's simply because maybe it was someone that lived a few doors away from your room. And when you passed the person, you always said hello. And in the course of NYSC, the course of uh, your work and interaction with people, you're, you pay attention to being courteous. You pay attention to being a value creator for people rather than a drain on people. And you know, creating value for other people is not about giving them money or about giving. It's just about sometimes it's courtesy. Sometimes it's helping when there's real help. Sometimes it's being helpful. You know, in, it's just about how you relate with people on a day-to-day -day basis. It costs you nothing to give a smile and say good morning. It costs you nothing to give a pat on the back. And just one minute to pay attention to someone that that attention will be meaningful to. So that's what I consider more important. Building relationships, leaving a trail of valuable relationships based on how you treat people. Because you know what? Half the time, you really don't know who people will become. You can guess and think that maybe this one is going to become somebody and that's why you're going to be their friend. You could be so wrong. And some people play out to be bigger than you could ever imagine, but you knew them when they were nothing. So that relationship is more meaningful. And even when you're already in a place of position of power or whatever, and it becomes more important how you even behave. Because then people think you're going to behave in a certain way, but it'd be nice to always shock people. 
by behaving in the opposite. Paying attention to being respectful, to being having a heart and uh, empathy for other people and considering other people the way you would like to be considered. I think those are my simple rules for interacting with people. And I found that over the course of time, one has then built multiple relationships with no expectation of anything. And at crucial or critical moments of your life, those relationships that you built or contacts you had just in the course of life became valuable relationships that played uh, to your advantage. So I think it's a better way to live. Now, in terms of books, one of the, I don't know about one, two, three books because it's just, um, I could read a part of one book and a part of another. It's just the way, the way I am. I would learn more from watching something than from sitting to read a big book from one end to the other. But one of uh, the kind of books that's always, I've always found fascinating, especially from the early days when I started business, is reading the stories of people's lives. You know, how the journey of people's lives, reading autobiographies of people. Sometimes you consider them great people, but sometimes it's interesting people. Sometimes it's just the way they've lived their life and the lessons that I can pick and I can learn from that. So people's story fascinates me. And I find I learn a lot from either watching the stories of people's lives or reading autobiographies of people's lives of how great companies are built or were built. All right. Thank you. Um, all right. Um, the next question, what principles have you applied in business in times of crisis that have that has helped you out of this situation? Hmm. For me, one and the most important thing is never to forget who I am. That in the, you see, one of the biggest tests of your character, of your person and of your value system is in the midst of a crisis. And it's the easiest place to drop your values. Mm. It's the easiest place to trade off who you are because you are pressured by the circumstance and the challenges. Which is why it's extremely important to have a conversation with yourself ahead of your crisis situation about who you are, who you choose to be, and the things you will not trade off. So that when you get into those situations, those are the things that keep you stable. Because when everything around you is moving, those things die. I'll tell you one of my most challenging moment was in 2004. I had, um, well, the government had a change of policy overnight that effectively could have shut down my business totally. We had started as a full local manufacturing company in our quest and desire to be able to produce faster, produce certain kind of quality, respond to the market, and all of that, we transited to become an OEM uh, 
we transited to become a company that was manufacturing through OEM companies abroad. We would design our own collection and we had five companies in five different countries that were producing different parts and components for us. And we will bring back all of those parts and we will combine them together to form our collection. So that helped us to grow very fast. We could respond to projects very quickly. If you wanted a thousand tables and Nigerians, you must also understand the character of your environment. Most Nigerians don't plan as much as they should. So you're building a 10 story, you're putting up a 10 story office building. A few weeks to the opening of the building, you want the building fully furnished and you're looking for furniture for a thousand people. How do you find that overnight? It doesn't happen. That's not how projects should run. But typically, a lot of Nigerian pro projects do run like that. Now, what does that mean in business terms? The company that has the capacity to respond to that urgent need will always get the transaction. And after a while, I saw that trend and realized that if you were going to continuously deliver the right quality and not have to compete with the lower quality uh, person, uh, the person selling lower quality furniture in the business who had imported all of this junk and was able to deploy them, you're going to have to find how to deliver that quality that you want, but at the speed of time that the customer requires it. So transiting to using OEMs gave us a chance to compete in that circumstance because we had our quality components waiting to be combined once we did the space plan for the project. And we could always tell the customer, you either have the space plan ready for us or you, you allow us to do the plan for the building. Once you approve it, we will do the plan based on our components and we would move in. In a matter of a week or two, we can set up a large uh, number of people to sit in an office space or at least get them started and then continue the transaction. And all of a sudden, the government had a change of policy that said you could not import any form of furniture. And effectively, that was going to paralyze our business as we knew it at that point in time. I had a few options. To continue to do what I did, but to smuggle the items in. Now, when I was starting business, I had chosen for myself two key principles. I was never going to pay a bribe to get a job, nor was I ever going to sleep with a man to get a job. They sounded like, um, you know, the idealistic values of a young woman who was not going to go very far with those principles. But that time in 2004, I remember we started January 3rd, 1989. This was 2004. It was just a few years down the line. No, no, it was 15 years after we had started. Yes. So 2004, yes, it was uh, about 15, 16 years after we had started. Anyway, I couldn't smuggle because that was totally against the values I had chosen for myself. Two, I, was not, I, I could not bribe 
because that was totally against what I'd chosen for myself. It was either I let the business go or that I found a legal solution to survive as a business. What your values and those pre-decision, what it does, it forces you to creatively search for a solution. It makes you think deeper. It makes you innovate in a situation that everybody else is pressured with at the same time. Mm. And that led to a joint venture partnership with the largest French manufacturer of office seating. Since I knew that my values did not allow me to do those things, I went in search of solutions. I went to a company that was most unlikely to come and invest in Nigeria to say, come into Nigeria with me and let's do this together. They laughed because they're the largest in France, one of the top 10 in the world in their sector. They had no investment outside of France at that point in time. Was Nigeria going to be their first place to go? But this is where my faith comes in. I had a God that I knew all things were possible with him. And I dared to believe him. And I also knew that I had a value system that restricted the lines I couldn't cross. So I had to fight for my business. Because I said to myself that I know that God has established me in this business. And he's not the God that establishes your feet upon a rock and kicks the rock from under your feet. So with that certainty of purpose, I pursued solutions, including working with the Ministry of Finance to find solution to the issue of textile fabrics for us to be able to produce legally. Because I could not smuggle the fabric. I'd, I had a joint venture set up. I had a factory built. But my, one of my raw materials was going to be a certain kind quality of material. And it was part of what was banned as well, as part of the overall ban. And I could go to the ministry with a full report that I'd asked a firm to make for me of what was going on in the entire textile industry. And because I'd made that effort, God granted me favor. The Minister of State for Finance then, Nenadi Usman, had met a friend of mine on a plane, and my friend told her about my challenge and what I was trying to do. She didn't know me from Adam. She then said, let her come to my office. And I went to her office. She called the Controller General of Customs, sent me to him. I got there. He sent me to his own people. We went through all their reports. I showed them all the samples of what I was trying to achieve, what I needed legally, because I was not willing to do it illegally. And in working with them, they found out that they had the right code for me to be able to get in the right kind of fabric I needed legally. And that's how that textile fabrics for upholstery became excluded in itself. So it's when you are committed to what is important to you, it won't always be easy, but it will give you a roadmap in the middle of the storm. So things are going crazy now. COVID-19, factories are short. You're not generating income. You have salaries to pay. There are people hungry around you. Are you going to hold on to everything you have and say, ah, I better save everything just in case there's nothing tomorrow? Or you know that you need 
some of what you have, but you also know that in some way you can afford to take care of someone that is about to die of hunger or that is really hungry around you and therefore you can contribute to help some other people. Or are you going to, with a heart of empathy, look at the people that work for you and work out a solution together as to how you survive and they survive and the business survive? I found that when you're sincere with people around you and you're open, you will find them more giving than you actually assume uh, that they are. And you can, there, there's solutions in every situation. But first, don't panic. Because what panic and fear does, it incapacitates you. It takes away your power of imagination. It sort of just locks you down and does not allow you to think of how you can systematically get out of that situation. It's your reality. Right now, there's no need killing myself over COVID-19. This is the real world of today. So that's my context to operate from. So within this context, the question I need to ask myself is, what do I want to achieve in this context? Remember that there is no war that takes everybody away. At the end of every war, there are always survivors. The question is, are you going to be part of those that will survive or part of those that will be consumed? And even in the midst of the war, there are people who prosper for the first time because there are opportunities in the midst of every situation. And if you're a Christian, the Bible says all things work together for your good. So what is the question? What is the good for me in the midst of this situation? Now, that means you're praying about it. You're trying to discern. You're strategically looking at the opportunities around you with respect to the talents and the gifts that you have and the strengths that you have. And you're able to determine how can I play? Where can I play? Where can I add value? And where can I take value? But you need a certain mindset in order to think through it. Powerful. That, that answers so many questions. But um, so this was going to be my last question, but I, I'm going to ask it now because, okay. because of the way you answered. And um, uh, let me just give a background. It's a very young person who is in our, um, I understand, our young professionals bootcamp that sent it in. But before I ask the question, I just put a background and I heard somebody say this and I agree with him. And this was an American and he said in the Bible, that um, Jesus gave people talent. And then after they multiplied the talents, 10 talents, he now said, um, I will place you as governors over cities. And he was advocating that um, people who are successful in business, uh, that's where we should pull our political leaders from. Because if you've been able to multiply talents, then he said, go and govern cities. So what this person asks is, it's not news anymore that you and a few other technocrats have so much passion and patriotism for Nigeria. Also, we've seen significant achievements you have attained over the years in life and business. In the view of this, will you consider either by election or appointment a leadership position that will afford you an opportunity to effect strategic changes in the growth and development of Nigeria? And then the person says, what role will you consider to, to enable you to do that? But the person is asking, 
that why don't we have people like you? I'm sure you already know that I'm not about to answer that question. <laughs> but you know what? I, what I will say is, look, we all have different uh, talents and gifts and different ways that we can add value to our country. And one of the things I've come to learn over time is that you do not need that political power is not the only power that allows you to influence how a country is built or how a country is developed. And I've seen too many good people get buried in it. And when I say good, I mean good. Because you actually need a system that works for you to get a critical mass mm. of those kind of people you're describing to be in the system and survive. If you throw, you know how Yoruba people say, one poor man in the midst of many, one rich man rich in man the middle of many poor people, that who is he? Is a poor man. One wise man thrown into the midst of, you can fill in the gap as you like, will end up in many ways. Not either you're numbed into ineffectiveness or non-performance in many ways. So the, we need some fundamental changes that will help us to achieve the kind of results that we seek. It's structural to our political system. It's structural to our educational system because the empowered electorate is the tool of democratic success. And that empowered electorate is an educated, enlightened electorate, not just an electorate that has gone to the four walls of a school. Mm. An educated, enlightened, objective electorate is a major tool for democratic success. And that means you, you also need a lot of right-thinking people to go into the public service. And public service, not just political service, because put the smartest minister over a particular ministry, if the civil service structure that he needs to oversee in order to execute his assignment doesn't work with the same belief system and value system and structure, he will fail or he will be challenged in many ways. So there, there, there are many, many parts of our system, sadly, that we need to attend to. Now, does that make me a non-believer? You know, without a doubt, I'm a firm believer in this country. And one thing I have resolved is that each and every one of us has a role to play. And, but in playing that role, you must know that you're able to play it in a way that you will actually create real value. So I live my life every day with that sense of consciousness seeking to add value in every way that I can and speaking as a voice to empower 
and to support those that have the political power in a way that you believe that somehow he would all come together to give us what we need. But the system right now isn't designed for many of those professionals or technocrats you're talking about to survive within it. About, I'll let it pass. But, but what yes. people want to... No, but what people <laughs> want to... No, 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 no. But, no, no. <laughs> but, but what we're saying is your problem-solving skills that people, entrepreneurs have, all these yeah. things you've listed, if they were in your company, you will solve the problem. You, you'll find yes. a way to make it work. So they're saying... Won't this people don't, come in? don't forget, <laughs> in my company, in my company, I'm chief executive. I make my own decision and I act on it. Everybody right, in there works for me. They follow my lead and they do what I say. And if they want to get paid their salary, they will do what we need to do in order to make sure we succeed. It's a different structure. This is why, you know, when we assume that Technocrats, people that have succeeded in business can automatically succeed in a political structure. We're actually wrong, and sometimes we destroy people. It's not because they shouldn't be able to, but if we had a system that would support them to, they can import those skills into that system and be able to influence or to affect in a positive way. But the system we have right now is not fully or structurally set to make it easier for those skills to be expressed. So I, I just watch a lot of smart people. You know, I think one of the ways we can solve a lot of problems is if a leader sets up certain national problems as a project outside of a government structure. Okay. Do you understand? Okay. You take a problem, you set it up as a project outside of a government structure, and you assign specific private sector people with support coming directly from the head of the government. So they know that they can run, they can try. Obviously, they will still have a lot of troubles. But as business people already, we do have troubles anyway. We have to navigate many different scenarios within the country every day and make a success of it. But that in itself will change the dynamics and the ability to respond very quickly to the situation. Because time is key in solving problems. The liberty of expression and not having to dance around one million and one people trying to do what you already know you need to do. It's just a, a different uh, game. And I think you need some skills. You need some political skills to survive politics. All right. Okay. We'll let that go. Now, um, now someone says, I'm going to go back to a question. Um, okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should just ask this here. And the person says, given the investors, that investors pump billions of dollars into equity investments in SMEs outside the country monthly to strengthen the startups and largely the economy. How can we, how can we startups and institutions motivate local investors, which means that is done a lot outside the country. So how can we move, motivate local investors to take such risks in Nigerian businesses too, so that our businesses can scale globally? 
I, I think there are quite a number of people who are acting as venture capitalists now, Nigerians, who spend time uh, listening to um, the business case for a number of small uh, businesses and who make investments in them. That crowd is growing, but there's also a lot of work that needs to be done on the side of the SMEs. Now, there's a whole value chain that usually leads to this. There needs to be a starting point, which usually in those countries the person is referring to, the starting point is from grants that government makes that allows the companies to test their idea. Because the best business case is a bundle of assumptions. Their hypothesis, you assume this to be this to be this. Until you actually get on the field, you don't know if your hypothesis or your theories, if they're true. So generally, grants from government will tend to allow you to test that. When you have your proof of concept and you're trying to do your first level of skill, there'll be a lot of people who know you, who believe in you, who trust you, generally family and friends around you and all of that. You find that next level of support. And as you begin to show that you're committed and this for you is important, you begin to find softer kind of investors around you that help you to get to one other level, even as the most serious investors begin to come. And I think for a lot of um, Nigerian companies, first, there, there's a lot of foreign uh, interest in Nigerian SMEs now, especially in the tech space. But there are also quite a number of Nigerian investors. I know quite a number of people, including myself, who try to invest in a number of small companies. But the companies themselves still need to learn a lot, need to do a lot, need to pay attention to structure, need to pay attention to financial records and financial management, need to invest more in gaining some skills, like go to uh, Lagos Business School, the Enterprise Development Center, and get owner-manager knowledge and or enterprise knowledge and all of those, just to create a more organized idea that is easier to invest in. We will get there. These things are not done overnight. And the banks themselves are trying in different ways to de-risk um, SMEs so that they can more readily create finance, uh, financial structures that will support their growth, which will then also make them more attractive to investors in total. It's a process. We will get, I think it's a lot better now than when we were starting 30, 31 years ago. So I think we'll get there a stage at a time. All right. Um, thank you. The next one um, says, what advice will you give to small business, um, a small business owner who is currently not making money, all right, because of the COVID-19, but has essential bills to pay? Uh, staff salaries at the end of the month, rent, bank loans, especially a business without cash reserves? Well, I think you're going to look at your own particular situation and evaluate. You can't pay your staff salary, call your staff, explain to them, this is the scenario right now. They work in the business. So I'm sure they already know the state of the business and they know the challenges that the business will face at this point in time since you're not trading right now. And agree something with them. Don't try and impress anybody. We can't afford the salary. I can pay you a certain amount 
of salary this month and that's all I will pay. Don't even say you will owe because if you've lost the income for this month and you have no chance to recover it, it's better to right. be upfront with them to say, look, for the months where we're not doing business, I can only pay this percentage of the salary just to support everybody to keep going. I don't want to have to let staff go. But where you actually need to, you might not have a choice. Call your bank. Don't wait for the bank to call you. Call, even though it's general information, everybody knows COVID-19 is out, uh, businesses are not trading. It, the right thing to do is for you to write officially to your bank and say that, I'm sorry, this payment is due on this day, but due to the current environment and all of that, I am however challenged. I'm unable to meet my obligations to you as at this day. Please allow me this number of days, 90 days, whatever, uh, by which time when this thing is over, we hope that we would kick, kick start and we'll be able to... Uh, a lot will also depend on your track record, though. Have you been paying when things were right or were you not paying? So it's this kind of moment that you trade on your track record. If you had a good reputation with suppliers, with staff, with your bank before now, you'll be rewarded for it. If you've always behaved badly, when you have a situation like this, you have nothing to draw on. So that's a lesson for all of us that, you know what? Do the right thing when you should, because a time will come when you will need to draw out of the equity of your goodness. That's, that's what I would say. And then find the most practical position for you. You know, find how you cut your costs at this point where you can. And close the tap so you're not running bills that you shouldn't. And, but when push comes to push, do whatever you can to protect your integrity in the course of it. And sometimes that means using your personal resources to close the gap so that you'll have it tomorrow where the business is concerned. You will find that important in some situations. All right. Um, um, somebody asks this, and I think it's a good question. It says that one of the platform events a few years ago, all right, so I think this was the first time, um, just looking at it, the first time you spoke at the platform, you advised that entrepreneurs should stick with one business, grow and nurture it, and not just jump from one business to another. Yeah. So, so the question is, what advice do you have if... Um, new technology coming in could potentially wipe away a business you have built for years. How do you deal with that? Look, you must always live your business life with the reality of the context of your season and your business situation. If there are changes going on in your business, your ability to adapt is critical for business success and business sustainability over time. You must understand the trends within your industry, which is why you need to be, to always seek knowledge, you know, go for fairs, go for conferences, all the knowledge you can within your industry. So you're not surprised, so to speak, because new technology doesn't just appear overnight. You would already see that the industry is trending towards something. And as the industry is trending towards that, you can begin to consider what your options are and what decisions you need to make for your business. Sometimes you need to totally change gear. Doesn't necessarily mean change gear in terms of industry, 
it can mean change gear in terms of your approach to the industry or the way you produce. You might have always done this one way and then you find out that if you're printing one way and all of a sudden 3D printing or digital printing is the order of the day, the, that's the quality the customer is looking for, but you insist because you've, you bought some particular machines for God knows how many millions of euro or pounds and all, all that and you think, no, no, there's no way this is the something, something you're going to lose out. So it's really about you understanding the terrain where you compete, understanding your business and seeing if that business, sometimes some businesses, their time is up. It's like considering the difference between Betamax and VHS. They wanted to serve the same, they wanted to serve the same customer. But two different technology came out at different times. One seemed like it was going to win. The other came out shortly after. But eventually, Betamax was killed and VHS survived. But where is VHS now? Displaced by what? By CDs. Where are CDs now? Totally gone. What killed Kodak? They had the technology. They had the knowledge. But they didn't realize early enough that photography the way they knew it had become democratized and that everybody will be able to take pictures from their phone as that market continued to emerge. And they had other solutions that could have made them a leader in other areas based on the same skills and innovation, innovative environment that they had. But their inability to make the right judgment at the right time and to make the change when it was important is eventually what caused Kodak to suffer as it did. So for every business person, it's absolutely important that you're in tune with the environment of the industry you compete in, that you're flexible enough to make the right decisions along the line of your industry and that you respond to, well, in a country like Nigeria, government policy alone can change what you do. So you have to listen to government announcements. You have to listen to what they're saying about what they're thinking about before they get to it. You have to listen to all the budget uh, conversations. You must spend time going to like the economic summit and all of that. You might think it's a lot of talk shop, but the guys who control policy making within government at whatever level, will be in some of those talk shops and you will pick up information that tells you the trend of government's thinking and the policies that will emerge. And that can help you in some ways to decide between going to A direction or B direction in your specific area of business. So inquisitiveness, knowledge, searching for knowledge, and flexibility and res responsiveness within your industry will be key to being able to determine whether you stay in one area or that you transit from where you are to another. All right. Uh, final question. I, I, I made up my mind. I wasn't going to, uh, because usually when people invite you to speak, it's about women in business. So I, I said, I, I told them that it's, I'm talking to a successful person, not a, just a successful woman. But um, um, I think I will just take uh, one question along those lines. Um, and, and the person says, and this will be the final question. I know a lot of people will shout, but we have only one hour. All right. 
Um, did you at any point have to sacrifice any of your family ideals in building such an illustrious career? As women, it's hard to juggle family and high-flying career. And we find that our children grow up and there are things we would have done differently concerning them. Dad, did you have any of those challenges? To be honest, I don't live with any regret of something I should have done that I haven't done. I consider I only have one life. There's no room for regrets. I'm grateful for a partner, a husband, who has been a great support and a true partner and created an environment of encouragement that's allowed me to run the rest of my life. I'm also quite realistic about my own strengths and my weaknesses. So I am not trying to be a superwoman in any, in any way. That's not the idea. I'm totally <clears throat> comfortable with outsourcing different parts of my life in order to make it work. It's part of my living a realistic life within the context of who you are and what you want to achieve. I receive help in every way that I can get it. I uh, set up systems uh, to create support and I do the best I can with each segment of my life. And the three key segments of my life are me and me, I'm consistent. My life is consistent. I will be with myself till the end of my days. And then at a stage of my life, my husband became a part of that. And to the best of my ability, I'll always seek to be the best and supportive wife I can be without undermining the woo that I am called to be. And the third level is the children came and God has been kind to me. I have three sons. My first is 28, my second is 25, and my youngest is 18. And doing the best I can with the support and the help of all the people around me, from those that I pay for the service and those that are family who reach out to support you because you're open to receive help. You know, my, my mother-in-law lived with us for 20 years. She was a great blessing to me. So for those who think, oh, my mother-in-law is a witch, I don't want her to come and live with me. Then if you had my kind of mother-in-law and you didn't let her live with you, then it's a loss because the times she was with us, it made my life a lot easier. Let me see whether I can get her back.
I'm trying to get her back. I'll get her back. We'll get her back. All right. <laughs> Turn off that one now. So we'll just take that last question and close. All right. <laughs> okay. I, I thought you guys were done. Okay. What was that? So I was talking about the fact that, you know, you, you have to live your within your, your own reality. Yeah. Yes. You, you have to live within your own reality. My mother-in-law was such a great blessing to me. And um, I had cousins and a niece who lived with me for part of uh, that time as well. They both got married from my house. And uh, they were a critical part of uh, looking after my children, you know, as I traveled and all of that. And my husband was uh, a great supporter. So it's really about you facing your own reality, deciding, okay, I, I want to do this. How do I make it work? The Bible talks about you working out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. Work out the system that allows you to live the life that you want for yourself. Work out how you empower yourself to be able to succeed in all of those things. Look, as crazy as my life is, I had kids at school in England for maybe the last 14, 15 years, and still I managed to make every exit, every half term, and all of that. Was it convenient? No, but my kids didn't send me to pursue my career. I made a choice to become their mother, and within that, I still wanted to do the things I wanted to do. So there are times I had to I had to make that sacrifice to remain a responsible mother to them, but also sacrifice to do the things that I consider important to me to want to do. Somehow it's all worked out, but it's worked out, one, through the grace of God, um, realization of one's... Uh, um, fallibility that is you're not infallible you can't do everything by yourself you must willingly accept help and you must set up responsible structures around you that allows you to work and for those who are single choose the right partner <clears throat> it makes all the difference you know the the man if you're a woman the man you call your husband will be key to your ability to live a full life to be successful in your career or your business and be successful as a husband, uh, as a wife, or as a, um, as a mother to your children. You need that partnership to work for the rest of it as well, to work. Thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you. All right. With the, the, result, the, the feedback I'm getting, people are pointing things. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. My right. pleasure. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Have a great evening. And stay safe. All right. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs>